From the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio, this is Injury Insider with Derek Hayes. Injured in Georgia? Make the right call to the law office of Derek M. Hayes at 404-777-HURT. Injury Insider is presented by Status Home Design, your one-stop shop for all your home and gift needs. Hello and welcome to Injury Insider with Derek Hayes on Business Radio X. We are broadcasting live from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio in the Sinesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel. This show will answer, answer legal questions and debunk personal injury myths with insight and expertise. For nearly 25 years, Derek Hayes has exclusively represented injured parties in Georgia. Now he'd like to put that knowledge to work for you. My name is Lita Brooks, and it's my pleasure to introduce the star of our show, Derek Hayes. Good afternoon, Derek. Good afternoon. Good to see you. Again. Thank you. I was getting a little tongue-tied on your That's intro. Right. I apologize <laughs> okay. for that. All right, I'm going to finish this up. Before, you did great. Thank you. Before we begin, a quick reminder that Injury Insider is brought to you by Status Home Design, your one-stop shop for all your home and gift needs, and by the law office of Derek M. Hayes. Injured in Georgia, make the right call to the law office of Derek M. Hayes at 404-777-HURT. <laughs> That's my favorite sound effect, right? <laughs> All right. So far, your podcasts have covered many aspects of personal injury claims and presented the information in such a way that it has been very enlightening for all of us myself and all of your listeners, I still feel like I'm getting a law school education. It is amazing how much you've covered in the shows, the prior shows, but I understand that today you're going to take a much different angle. Let's talk about today. What, what are, where are we going with today's show? Well, today was actually brought on by a question from a client. You know, I've talked about different kinds of law. I've talked about different issues within personal injury claims, from respondeat superior to dram shop laws, those kind of things. But today, I want to talk specifically about our court system here in Georgia, kind of in general terms, and really specifically where personal injury claims should typically be filed. Uh, and again, I chose this topic because I realize there are a lot of common misconceptions that people have about d the different kinds of courts and what each one does. In fact, like I said, just this week I was filing suit on a case and I talked to the client and indicated we were filing in state court, actually in Gwinnett County, and he didn't understand why. Um, and he asked several questions. All were great questions, which are kind of what formulated the podcast today. Uh, you know, most people have heard the different names of the courts from magistrate court, state court, superior court but not everybody understands what that means. And as an attorney in Georgia, we're all sworn in to each of those courts, magistrate, state, superior, court of appeals, Supreme Court, all of the above. Okay, I can say as a lay person, I don't know the difference. So I can, right off the top, this is gonna be an extremely important show and a very informative show. We always learn a lot, but yeah, right, exactly what you just explained, yeah. I was not aware of. And, and when the client asked the question, it's not a two minute answer, it's a you know 10 minute answer, because you, you really wanna make sure you touch on all the different um, issues with each one of the courts. And after all was said and done, you know, he, he said exactly what I said. He had a lot of misconceptions about what each court did and why you would choose one over the other. Okay, before we talk about the different courts, why is it important to know which one to use for your personal injury claim? Great question, and that's exactly why I'm doing the podcast. So before I go into, uh, further into the specifics, it's extremely important to consult with an attorney first about your specific facts 
because there are special circumstances where one court may have what we call jurisdiction over the subject matter. Another court may have that. So you have to, again, consult with an attorney. So call my office. We'll discuss in depth the facts in your case, and I can guide you in the right direction as your attorney to file in whatever court's necessary. So we need to start about, talk about something called jurisdiction first. Okay. I'm going to touch on that. So there are three types of jurisdiction. There's original jurisdiction, which is the court that gets to hear the case first. Like, for example, state court or superior court. Next would be appellate jurisdiction. That's the power for a higher court to review a lower court's decision. You hear about the Court of Appeals here in Georgia as well as the state Supreme Court. And then finally, exclusive jurisdiction. That's the only court that can hear a specific kind of case. So when we talk about jurisdiction, it's either original, appellate, or exclusive. And as I talk about each one of the courts kind of through the rest of the podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about what falls under each the jurisdiction for each of those courts. But you also have to consider something called venue before you file suit. Okay. Well, once again, you said it. This is exactly why you would need to call an attorney. And I just want to touch on that point before we go further. Because, again, as the layperson listening to this, I would have no idea. So let's say I've just been injured or I've been in a car accident. The first thing I should do would be to call. Correct. Right? Correct. There's Absolutely. a lot that goes into this right off mm-hmm. the top. And I know... A lot of people, I don't know if I should say many or most, think that or want to try to handle this themselves. Right. And, and, and right not, off the get-go, they would probably be in over their head. Correct. Or they don't have the ability to actually file suit in certain courts. You have to be an attorney to file suit in certain courts. And, and really, kind of on a side note, very quickly, I want to talk about bankruptcy courts. not something I was going to dive into, but something you mentioned kind of brought it up. In Georgia, if someone has an active Chapter 7 or Chapter 13 bankruptcy and they have a personal injury claim... As an attorney representing them, I have to petition the federal bankruptcy court to appoint me for what's known as a special purpose. And that special purpose is for handling their personal injury claim. So I petition the federal bankruptcy court. They sign off basically on the order to allow me to represent that client. Then eventually when the case is settled or we go all the way through trial and we get a verdict, then I have to petition the court, the bankruptcy court, to number one, approve the settlement, which goes through the trustee, and then to some extent kind of allocate the funds. Uh, and unfortunately, dealing with bankruptcy court, it means that many times the client is not going to get as much as they thought they would otherwise, because the bankruptcy court has the ability to tap in and pull a good portion of that money to satisfy the creditors. That makes sense. I understand. So, kind of a side note. There. Yeah, and I didn't mean to get you off topic, but I don't want to breeze over that. I mean, that is the most important part. Um, you're here to give us your time and your expertise. But again, this is a fantastic topic that it just shows, again, why calling you would be the first step mm-hmm. if anyone is injured. Okay, let's go back uh, to where we left off. You were talking about the venue. Uh, so go back to that why is the venue important for a personal injury case okay venue refers to the proper county where the lawsuit would be filed so in a personal injury lawsuit you'd normally file in the county where at least one defendant lives so if you have multiple defendants and they live in multiple counties at least one of those defendants you choose that county to file the lawsuit again there's a misconception people have that if there's a car wreck in fulton county you've automatically filed suit in Fulton County. Well, that's not necessarily the answer. If the defendant driver lives in DeKalb County, well, then you're going to be filing in DeKalb, not Fulton. So just something to think about there. So let me give you a different example. Let's say you want to file suit against the driver that rear-ended you at a red light. Let's just choose a a specific kind of car wreck. So the owner of the vehicle is somebody different than the driver. So say I I loaned you my car and you rear-end some, which I hope you don't. Okay. You rear-end somebody at a red light. I'll try not to. And let's say that we live in different counties. Mm -hmm. I live in Fulton County, which is here in Metro Atlanta. You live in, say, DeKalb County, again, Metro Atlanta. 
So the person that, that you rear-ended, they now have a choice of either filing in Fulton County, where I reside as the owner of the vehicle, or in DeKalb County, where you reside as the driver of the vehicle. Again, at least one defendant has to reside in that county where you file the lawsuit. Um, or the, if the at-fault driver works for a company and the company has a registered agent for service that's located in a different county, then you could also file suit in the county where the registered agent for that company resides. Generally, Fulton County, which is big for registered agents, or Gwinnett County, DeKalb, Cobb County, some of the bigger metro counties. Mm-hmm. Um, again, kind of on a side note, if, um, say, for example, somebody's traveling through Georgia and they live in Florida and they are the ones that cause the wreck. Well, they don't live here in Georgia. They live in Florida. So at that point, you can file suit either in the county where the defendant or where the plaintiff lives, the person who was injured, or the county where the wreck occurred. Okay. So once you figure out the proper jurisdiction and venue, you are ready to file suit. Is that correct? Yes. And that leads me to the first court that I want to talk about. It's called magistrate court. Okay. So most people refer to magistrate court as people's court. That's the perception. Right. You know, years right. ago, Judge Wapner. Judge Wapner, yeah, yes. Judge Judy. <laughs> uh, I mean, you can go through the list of, of the judges and the TV shows. Okay. But people really refer to magistrate court as people's court. Um, so Judge Judy, Judy, like I said, is kind of a perfect example of that. But not every judge acts like Judge Judy. In fact, most of them don't. It's not like you see on TV. That is a made-for-TV show. So you do have to you do not have to be an attorney to file suit in magistrate court. That's one of the first differences. So anyone can file suit in magistrate court. Again, you don't have to be an attorney, nor do you have to hire an attorney to file suit for you in magistrate court. Unfortunately, many people make a major, major, major mistake by filing their case in magistrate court without getting advice from an attorney first. In fact, I can tell you lots of stories about people who've called me to kind of come back behind them and try and clean up a mess created when they filed suit I'm in magistrate sure. court first. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there's not too much I can do. Okay, so once it's been filed, cleaning up is the difficult part. Correct, correct. Okay, all right. I say it again. I've said it twice. You got to call. You got to call the attorney. That's right. All right, so let's go there. Let's talk about those stories of the messes. Um, can you give us an example? I know a lot of what you do is confidential. but Yeah, and, and I'll, again, in general terms, so... Magistrate court, this is something a lot of people don't realize. It's a basic fact about magistrate court, and that is the verdicts are capped at $15,000, period. So no matter what your medical bills may be, no matter what the value of your claim truly may be, if you filed suit in magistrate court, you have now capped out the value of your claim at $15,000. That's the maximum jurisdiction. It's a cap. So no matter what, through the life of that case now, your damages are capped at $15,000. Um, you, you can't get a verdict any higher than that. So here, here's kind of a story. You know, you, you, you asked me to give you an example. I'll give yes. you, we call them horror stories. Here's kind of a horror story that came to me. Uh, it's been a few years ago where uh, a man was in a car wreck. He, uh, he called me, and it was kind of interesting. He had already gotten a $10,000 verdict in magistrate court because he was hurt in a car wreck. He had medical bills. So he called me after he'd gotten a $10,000 verdict. So initially I'm thinking, hey, the guy did well. He got 10000 without knowing the facts though. So as I started asking questions, I found out that he filed suit only a couple of months after his wreck because a friend, and I put that in quotes, a friend told him that it was what he should do. Okay. Didn't ask an attorney, didn't call me, didn't call anybody else. He just did what a friend told him he thought he should do. So the car insurance company for the at-fault driver had already denied most of the guy's medical bills, which is what led him to filing suit. 
they'd claimed, I think, that the treatments were unrelated because uh, I think they argued that some of the, the diagnostics didn't match up with the complaints, those kinds of things that insurance companies tend to do. So that's why he decided to file suit on his own. So after he filed it, he found out that he had what he thought was just basically a sore shoulder. Actually, it was a rotator cuff uh, tear. And so he wound up having to have rotator cuff surgery. Hold on. Do we know if that rotator cuff tear was from the accident? Allegedly so. According to the doctor, they could pinpoint the the specific tear injury from the impact, the blunt force trauma in the car wreck. So the surgery itself was expected to cost about $40,000, which included the therapies and all the things that come after the surgery. But the problem was the fact that he had filed in magistrate court. He had now capped out his damages at fifteen thousand, no matter what. And he's already got ten. Right. Well, he got a verdict for ten, even okay. though the maximum they could have given was fifteen. He got a verdict. He for got 10. a verdict for ten. But by filing there, he's now capped out his claim at fifteen thousand dollars, even though he's now found out he needs a surgery that's forty thousand bucks. Okay. So, so is he calling you saying, "Okay, what can I, do? I need more money. Exactly. I got to have surgery. Right. This isn't over." Ten thousand's not going to be enough. Exactly, and okay. so for him, he's thinking, well, okay, I'll just get an attorney to to appeal this and and deal with it and get the more appropriate verdict, especially with forty thousand in in surgery staring him in the face. So the magistrate court, like I said, gave him the ten thousand dollar verdict. The ju- judge never heard evidence or testimony about the future surgery because, unfortunately, he did not know the proper steps to get that admitted into evidence. So therefore, the vast majority of his damages regarding the surgery, the judge never allowed it. And even if the judge had allowed it, because he had filed in magistrate court, his damages still would have been capped at $15,000. So the worst part, the policy limits for the at-fault driver, the insurance company, those cover- the coverage was $250,000. $250,000 That is the worst part. So he had a substantial amount of money that could have been tapped into yeah. by way of a settlement or eventual verdict from the at-fault driver's coverage. But... Again, because he'd filed in magistrate court, he'd capped it at 15000 So he'd just done the insurance company a huge favor. So even though I could appeal the case to uh, for him to state court, it still was gonna get, only going to be capped out at $15,000. Oh, no. Yeah. So you can see how that kind of yes. creates a big, big mess. I feel really bad for this gentleman. And, of course, I don't know who he is, but, oh, yeah. your heart just bleeds well, for him. Yes. What did you do, buddy? The, the, the problem is there's not much we could do. Even right. if I'd appealed it, by the time you spill, spend the money in the appellate side of things, depositions and hearings and all those uh, parts that come with it, you know, it would cost probably three or $4,000 just in the appellate cost, if not five. So remember, it's capped at 15. He already had 10. So the most he could have gained on top of that 10 would have been another five, which likely would have been spent pursuing the appeal. Wow. So if filing the case in magistrate court was not the right approach, what should he have done? Well, the easy answer, of course, he should have called me. Right. Yes, before filing. Keep saying that. Before filing. Okay. He should have called, you know, the advice of a friend. Sometimes it's great, but if you're seeking advice about a legal matter and it's not an attorney, that's not really a good choice. It's like you wouldn't ask your barber how to do heart surgery. Right. It's the kind of thing that you just need to make sure you talk to a specialist, someone who understands what's going on and give the proper advice and deal with it. So he put himself in a position to have to pay out of pocket for a surgery that was caused by somebody else. That's the cold, harsh, obviously awful part of the story. The rest uh, of the answer is that if the case had been filed properly, it would have been filed in state or superior court, depending on the county. All right. So let's talk about both of those courts. Tell us what we need to know about them. All right. Let's start with state court. So not every county in Georgia has a state court. 
Uh, you must be an attorney licensed in Georgia to file suit in state court in Georgia. Uh, the state courts usually have juries of six or sometimes 12 people. Uh, you can choose as the attorneys in the case, the plaintiff attorney and defense attorney, whether you want a jury of six or a jury of 12. Uh, there'll be depositions where you give your sworn testimony under oath before the actual trial. There'll be something called discovery, which uh, will occur prior to the trial itself. Discovery is uh, where both sides exchange questions that the other side has to answer. They'll request documents the other side has to produce, those kinds of things leading up to the eventual trial. So some state courts in Georgia require a case to go through mediation first before it goes to trial. It's We call those mandatory mediation counties. So. If you file suit in, in certain counties, like DeKalb County, for example, and it's mandatory mediation, then you're going to go through a mediation process before you can even appear on a trial calendar. And, and I'm going to dedicate a full podcast later on to mediation. Uh, it is an important, and we call it alternative dispute resolution, mediations, arbitrations, other ways of getting cases resolved. So I don't want to go any further into that now. But state court basically handles civil lawsuits, civil actions, um, other things that, that the Superior Court doesn't have jurisdiction over, things like dispossessions, uh, misdemeanors, uh, crimes, and also to certain traffic offenses. That falls under state court. All right. So what about Superior Court? How is it different from state court? Well, the first difference is every county does have a Superior Court. So smaller counties that don't have state and Superior will just have a Superior Court. Um, some cases are required to be filed in Superior Court even where the county has a state court system. Let me give you an example there. So Fulton County has state court and superior court. If you have a claim against MARTA, MARTA, the uh, jurisdiction is superior court. So if someone's hit by a MARTA bus or MARTA drivers at fault for a wreck, uh, MARTA, for those of you that are in Metro say, Atlanta, we have to tell them right, what MARTA is, is. Is our transportation system sure. throughout Metro Atlanta? It's like the subway system in New York, but sure. we're not underground. Right, we're, it's, we're it, above. Right, ground. there's MARTA trains, right. there are MARTA buses. So ultimately, if it's a MARTA case and they're the defendant, then it's required to be filed in Superior Court of Fulton County. Um, there'll be depositions, discovery, uh, just like in the state court. Things that, uh, again, we talked about there. There'll also be generally a jury of either six or twelve people. Um, Superior Court really kind of has more strict rules in place than state court. Superior Court usually is responsible for handling cases um, involving serious crimes like felonies, civil disputes, divorces, uh, domestic relations issues, real estate matters, family matters, those kinds of things. That generally falls under the jurisdiction of Superior Court. Okay. I had that question in my head. I was thinking, I wonder where a divorce, they're common, Superior right? Court, right. Yeah, which, which court would have uh, divorces? But you answered that for me. Thank you. I know those are not the only courts in Georgia. Do you want to talk about any others? Yes, kind of like I referenced uh, bank bankruptcy court earlier. I want to talk about probate court for yeah. a very specific What's reason. Probate court? So probate court, people think of you know when somebody passes away, the will is probated. Uh, the probate court's responsible for divvying out the estate of the deceased. Mm -hmm. um, probate court does a lot of other things too, though. So in Georgia, if a case for a minor child, a child under the age of eighteen, settles or has a verdict of $15,000 or more, then you must, and that's a big word, must, underline it, must seek the approval of the probate court in the county where the child resides. Now, the probate court in those cases where, the, again, the settlement or verdict is over 15000 they do two things. Number one, they approve the settlement for the kid. Basically, as the attorney, I present this to probate court after, you know, again, as an example, I say for I settle a case or get a verdict of $20,000 for a a 14-year-old child. 
So then I have to petition the probate court in the county where that child resides. In that petition, I have to get the judge to approve the settlement. So many times I'll appear in a hearing, in the context of a hearing, sometimes in chambers, sometimes in court, and explain to the judge why the case settled for $20,000. And if the judge understands and accepts the settlement of $20,000, then he or she will sign off on that. The second thing, though, really is the more important part, and that is the judge will appoint someone to be responsible for the money for that child until the child reaches the age of 18. Now, the purpose of that, and it's extremely important, is to protect the interest of the child. So before the probate court had jurisdictions over these settlements of 15000 or more, you could have a substantial settlement for a 5-year-old kid or a 10-year-old or whatever, and that money would have gone to mom, dad, aunt, uncle, grandparents, whomever has the custody of that child. And there was no requirement for them to protect that money for the child. So if that money included a substantial amount for the long-term care for that kid into their adult years, but yet that money's not protected by the time the kid's 18, you know, that multi-million dollar outcome may be completely gone. And so that's why it's important to make sure that, that the money is protected and someone is now uh, responsible and has to answer to the probate court for what happens to the money. That's great. The checks and balances system right That's there. It. Yes. That's it. Okay. So if they want to take money out, for example, to buy a computer, let's mm -hmm. say the kid is now in middle school or high school, and as part of their studies, it's it's important for them to have a home computer, but they want to be able to pull money out of the, the, the probated money, the money that's being uh, held by the probate court. They want to pull money out to purchase that computer. The, the person who's the guardian of the money will have to explain to the judge why they need to pull money from the child's settlement to buy the child a computer. So every time you need something or want something for the child, you have to go to the court. That's it. And Are there fees attached to that? I mean, uh, is it going to cost you to use the judge's time? There's a minimal fee, and okay. I, I, don't, I couldn't tell you curious. exactly. Because it, it's, here, here's the thing, though. Most judges aren't going to allow it. They're going to look at the parent, the guardian, and say, why can't you buy it? Oh. Why are you having to need mo or use money from the fact that uh, your little boy or girl uh, broke their arm, had surgery, and, and now has a settlement that's there for them when they turn 18. Why do you need that money? Or if you can prove to the judge, for example, the kid's now 16 and needs a car to get to and from work. Well, you're not going to go in and get approval for a very expensive sports car. It's going to be a very reasonable, usually used car that you can justify to the judge the exact dollar amount they're going to let you pull out. And it will be to the penny. You'll go in with a uh, you know, a, a, a potential car. And, oh, okay. And so you say this is the, the car that we want. That's it. Okay. This is what we're buying. This is exactly what it's going to cost. Wow. And if the judge agrees and allows that purchase, then that's what you're going to be able to pull out. Very interesting. Don't we have a Supreme Court in Georgia too? So uh, let me ask a second question on top of this one. It's just popped in my mind. Can a personal injury case wind up in Supreme Court? Yes. 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 It and can yes? wind up. That, that's the key word, wind up there. Or okay. So... To, to answer the first part, don't we have a superior, Supreme Court? Yes, we do have a Supreme Court here in Georgia. Um, the case for a personal injury claim would not be filed there. You would never file a personal injury case in Supreme Court. It's not a court of original jurisdiction, but you could definitely wind up in Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court of Georgia is the highest judicial authority in Georgia. Back in 1896, quick history lesson, it became the panel of six judges initially. So that six-judge panel from 1896 until 1945 was there to determine you know, cases that made it all the way to, again, the highest judicial authority here in Georgia. In 1896, or I'm sorry, 1945, rather, they bumped it up to seven judges, and that's to provide a majority. 
Because if you have six, you're never going to have, or they're not never, but there are times when you won't have a majority. It could be three and three. Sure. But with seven, Gotta you can have, have a majority. Number. So finally in 2017, so only a few years ago, that jumped up to nine justices. So it's an elected position uh, in a statewide nonpartisan election. It's a six-year term. If there is a vacancy, in the, and I say six-year term, and I point that out because unlike the, the U.S. Supreme Court, in Georgia, it's a six-year term. So every six years, you're running for office if you're on the, the bench for the Supreme Court. Any vacancy is filled initially through an appointment by the governor until the next election rolls around. Um, the chief justice is the designated chief presiding officer and administrative officer of the court. Uh, they are elected. The chief judge is elected by all of the justices. So the nine justices vote on who they want to be their chief justice. They also vote on a presiding justice. So in case something happens to the chief justice is absent or for some reason becomes disqualified or unfortunately passes away well, the presiding justice then moves into that slot as the chief justice. Okay. My favorite part are the cases, examples, stories. So can you give us an example of a personal injury case that made its way to the state Supreme Court? Yeah, I can. And, and this one I picked purposely because it's such an interesting story. Um, it's, it's one of those that it makes you think. And that's okay. really why it wound up at the this, Supreme Court. These are my favorite. I'm because like you it already. Can, as an attorney, you learn that you can argue virtually every side of every argument. <laughs> and, and you learn very quickly that just because you see it one way does not mean that that's the only way to see an issue. And so um, the case I want to talk about is Bibbs v. Toyota Motor, Motor Corp. Um, now, this, again, is, is really interesting how this case panned out. So in September of 1992, a lady was injured in a car accident when she, her seatbelt and door latch of her 1986 van failed to function properly. She was out in a coma, and ultimately she was um, basically kept alive by life support for a long time. Uh, after the accident, the initial accident, her legal guardian filed a personal injury lawsuit against the car manufacturer, uh, and they alleged faulty seatbelt and door lock mechanisms that led to her severe injuries and, again, the coma. Um, the car manufacturer settled with the plaintiffs back then mm -hmm. for the initial personal injury claim. Again, she didn't pass away. She was in a coma. She was kept alive by machines. In exchange for that settlement for the personal injury claim, the plaintiff's representatives, their attorneys, released the company from any claims and damages, including a claim for wrongful death. That's what the, the release form they signed off on said. We're releasing all claims, including wrongful death. But the interesting part was the plaintiff hadn't died. Right. So there is no wrongful death claim. There's only a personal injury claim at that point. So they're signing off on a claim that hasn't even happened yet. She's not died. So the plaintiff never woke up from her coma, and 20 years later, she died. Wow. 20 years they later. They kept her alive after the accident. 20 mm -hmm. years? So after Aww. she died, her husband and her children filed a wrongful death suit. Okay. So there was a personal injury case right after the car mm -hmm. wreck. That settled. They signed off on a release form, which, which basically released the wrongful death action, but there wasn't a wrongful death action at the time. So they couldn't release an action that hadn't happened. So 20 years later, when she did die, the uh, like I said, her husband and children filed a wrongful death suit asking for damages for the full value of her life. Now, let me talk about that briefly. In Georgia, in a wrongful death case, the value of the claim is the economic value of life, period. So if somebody's killed in a car wreck, for example, the damages are what the economic value of that life was to the family. 
Does that have to do with your age? It can. It can have to do with your age. It can have to do with your profession. If you're a um, someone who unfortunately didn't have a, an education, you have bounced around from job to job and have not really had a life uh, where you've earned a lot of money, well, that economic value is going to be valued typically very low. If you're someone who has um, you know a, a very high education, have uh, you've started companies, you, you've made lots of money over the course of your lifetime, and you're projected to continue to increase your earning ability, well, then that value, economic value of life is going to be a lot greater. Okay. So it's determined by that. So anyway, so Toyota argued that she had already been paid for the value of her life and that they had released all other claims beyond her funeral expenses. A valid argument. Right, because they had signed off on that release. Now, sure. It made it all the way to the state Supreme Court. So in the Court of Appeals which is the second level, the Court of Appeals agreed with Toyota and basically said, no, there, there is no claim left anymore. You, you've settled the personal injury claim. Unfortunately, yes, she's now died, but that claim was resolved. So it, it was appealed again all the way to the state Supreme Court. So the Georgia Supreme Court held that although a wrongful death cause of action benefits the survivors, the measure of damages is often the same as a personal injury action as a matter of law. So the damages they received for the personal injury, which was the lifetime care, the medical expense, being kept alive on the machine, that was a substantial amount of money. Uh, 30-something million dollars was the outcome in that oh case. So the, the court said, though, that, that there's similarities between a wrongful death case and an actual personal injury case. But the court explained in another case that wrongful death claims were intended to be a substitute for personal injury claims when the injured party dies. So when she died, it almost created a new claim because it was an injury claim until her death. Right. Then in her death, it's now a wrongful death case. So in the past, before there was a uh, cause of action for the wrongful death, you could not bring uh, you could bring a personal injury case, but not for the wrongful death itself. So when someone was killed, they could not bring a personal injury suit because the plaintiff was deceased. The wrongful death was meant to allow recovery for the death of an individual, but that recovery is rooted in the same principles as the personal injury damages. So the court held that the decedent, the, the lady who passed away, had already been fully compensated for her injuries, just not for the additional facts of her death, the economic value of life, which would be very minimal because the economic value of life at that point was measured based on someone who's being kept alive by by machine, by a ventilator for 20 years. So they don't measure it based on her potential. No, because had point, she not had the accident, she could have had 20 years of a correct of a more full life, a career with sure. more income and more economic value. So uh, the the personal injury damages did contemplate the lifelong coma, but did not con contemplate the actual death. So at the time of her death, so basically that the Supreme Court said, well, we agree with parts of this, but we're going to reverse this and allow damages to to be heard for the death that at that point, the economic value of the life of someone who's been in a coma for 20 years kept alive by a machine, as opposed to the Court of Appeals that said there's no claim there. So it's an interesting twist that 20 years after the fact, there was now a new claim created from a car wreck that occurred that long ago, in, back in 1992. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So I, it, I mean, I just, I, you know, I see it both ways, right? Like you said, you can argue any. You can argue either side of either it. Either side of it. So that wow. case was decided in June of uh, 2018. Okay. Think about that. 1992 was the wreck. 1992 was the wreck. And then 2018. 2018. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yep. All right. Are we, are we wrapping up? Well, yes, we are. But uh, there was a question. 
there was. Oh, good. All right. So I've got the question here in front yes. of me. I want to make sure that you had covered everything on the state Supreme Court that you wanted to cover. Yeah, and I could go long, a long time sure, about all the courts. Sure, that's why I wanted to ask. But if you I wanted to touch all. on some of the high points, and and I think we have. I mean, there are other things we could talk about with the courts, and if there are specific questions, that's right. Please submit those. Submit we'll talk more in. about that in a few minutes. Yeah, if you've had an accident and you're not certain, of course, we're saying throughout this podcast, call, call, call an attorney. But absolutely, uh, if you need to know what court something gets submitted in reach out to that's Derek it. that's your first point of contact okay all right we did have this uh, question submitted through yes. your website and at the end of the show we're going to give everyone listening the information and the tools to be able to submit their questions let's dive into this uh, this is from Tom and he wrote in I hear two different things on what to do when pulled over if I've had a drink or two I'm not for drinking and driving, but I do enjoy one every now and then, and I'm able to drive home fine. But what if I'm pulled over? My friends say never take a breathalyzer. What is right and what is wrong? Thank you. I will listen for your answer. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate that. I appreciate you submitting the question. And before I respond to the question, it's important to point out that I do not handle DUI defense. I've not. I will not. I don't want to. I do not do that kind of law. But I will say this, do not drink and drive. Let me, let me stress that. <laughs> do not, do drink, not and drink and drive. You, you said in your question, I'm not for drinking and driving. Well, I'm not either, Tom. I, I appreciate you pointing that out. But I did reach out to a personal friend of mine, a guy I've known for over 30 years. He's one of the most uh, prominent DUI defense lawyers in all of Georgia. And I'd be happy to give you his contact info, Tom, if you do need it. But I reached out to him and, and um ask the question for you and I, I did get some kind of bullet points in general terms that I want to talk about in response to your question if you want his contact info then by all means uh, Tom you can call my office again we'll give the, the contact info in a few minutes I know you've been on my website but we'll talk more about that shortly so the answer to this according to my friend is that this is not a one-size-fits-all answer it's not the answer it starts with it depends so I can only give general information like I said um, but understand, again, that this is not legal advice for you or anybody else listing. It really depends on the true amount of alcohol you consumed before getting pulled over. So if it really was just one or two drinks, then this will usually not put someone over the legal limit. Well, let's go with one or two drinks through the course of an evening. That's it. Through the that, course of a football game or an event, correct, right? Correct. Not one or two drinks back real to back quick slam or a hard. shot right, in a right. drink. If you're yes. watching a football game and you're there for several hours, well, then, of course, that's a long period of time. Uh, also, things like your height, your weight, your body makeup, all those things can determine how much alcohol you can consume and still be under the legal limit. So you're probably going to be going home if you're under the limit with only one or two drinks. Most people, you know, if you do the breathalyzer, again, depending on all those factors we don't know, then that you probably would be under the limit. So if you flat out reject the breathalyzer, you may not be going home soon, if at all. If you refuse to submit, they can potentially get a very quick search warrant to get the test done at the station. So you'll be potentially placed under arrest, taken to the station, and a blood test done at that point. So the breathalyzer is notoriously unscientific and very challengeable in court. I understand that DUI defense attorneys do that all the time. They challenge the validity of the breathalyzer, the, uh, the, the chain of command, basically, the training of the officer in doing those tests. Um, if you fail the blood test, you can typically expect to be locked up. You're going to have a bond issued. You're going to spend a lot of time 
or at least a little bit of time before getting out of jail after a preliminary hearing. You must know how much you drank. Remember that. You must know. Do not get behind the wheel if you're over the limit or anywhere close. Think about things like if you go to the same bar and you, you know the bartender and they tend to give you a pretty strong pour, that's going to be a lot more alcohol than just a regular drink somewhere else. If you've lost track of how many you drank, that's not a good idea to get behind the wheel. If you did shots, mm-hmm. a lot of people do shots to celebrate a touchdown, a field goal, whatever. I would say, are you having singles or doubles? That's you it. may have two drinks, but you may have not just a heavy pour, but you may have doubles. So you're thinking kind of flippant, oh, I've only had two drinks. Well, maybe, but you've had four. Yeah, exactly. With the amount of alcohol consumption. Yeah. In addition to the risk involved, you know, your license may be suspended if you refuse to submit to testing after you've been placed under arrest. So there is the risk of losing your license um, until a court proceeding goes forward. And at that point, you may have it reinstated, but you can definitely lose your license for a period of time. So, again, to sum it up, do, do not, not drink, drink and, and drive. drive. <laughs> I'll say that as many times as I have to. And, and God, the other issue is if you're over the limit and you cause a wreck, well, guess what? I'll be the one coming after you to compensate the people you've injured when you caused that wreck. I mean, that's the nature of what I do. So <laughs> there we go. Like I said, my favorite sound effect. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but it's not because of what it represents. Yeah, and Tom, I appreciate the question, but but again. Yes, Tom, thank you very, very Call much. me if you want to be in touch with uh, DUI defense attorney, and I can definitely give him your contact. Well, hopefully Tom doesn't need info. it. Right, maybe right. maybe Tom was writing in for somebody else, right? Don't people exactly. write in? I'm just asking yeah. for a friend. For a friend, correct. Right, so if anybody needs it, again, Derek is here as a fantastic reference. Derek, I'm going to turn it over to you to close the show, but we've told everyone we are going to have you you tell them where can they find you give them your website give them uh, the phone number every which way they may need to reach you all right let's start with the website the website is derek d-e-r-e-k the letter m as in matthew hayes h-a-y-s dot com so derek m hayes dot com if you go to my website you'll see uh, an area where you can submit questions it actually has a conversation uh, tab that'll pop up and you can directly correspond with me or one of my paralegals, someone in my office until they can get me. And uh, you can communicate with us there and ask questions. You can also submit a question directly, which will come directly to me and I'll be the one to respond or to call you and respond to your question. You can click on the podcast tab and under the podcast tab, you can submit a question directly there. All I ask for is your name. If you want to put your city, you can do that. Um, You can also email me from there. So if there are questions again, just do that. Also, I have all kinds of social media, Facebook, the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes, uh, Instagram, the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes, and Twitter, the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes. My phone number is 404-777-HURT or 678-225-0970. Thank you so much for joining us on Injury Insider with Derek Hayes, presented by Status Home Design and the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes. Don't forget that you can enjoy any of our episodes anytime by visiting businessradiox.com, selecting the Gwinnett Studio, and then clicking on Injury Insider with Derek Hayes. This program is also available on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, for Derek Hayes, I'm Lita Brooks, and you've been listening to Injury Insider on Business Radio X.